Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I believe in the in the power of imagination. I always believe that you can imagine different different worlds, different societies, different and even a different you, a di different uh, persona of you. So, um, Locuela, my my second novel and um, in, in English, my third one in Spanish. I always say that I started this this book thinking something so simple. What what would happen if I Instead of going to, to the bar and having a beer with a friend, I would remain in my, in my home place uh, watching a movie. That a small uh, alternative makes two Carlos. And the world is, is full of, of different uh, choices. You know? Every choice you do makes you a different person. We interpret life at moments of the deepest desperation. The insightful words of Chilean novelist, short story writer and essayist Roberto Bolaño from his iconic novel The Savage Detectives, published in 1998. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Can fiction change the world? and possibly the way we think too. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to ask that question with two thought-provoking and hugely original writers who took part at this year's ISLA, the Irish-Spanish Latin American Literary Festival at the Instituto Cervantes in Dublin in October. This year's festival team was Borders. Mexican narrator, essayist and editor Alvaro Ribe unpacks the relationship between migration words and borders and Chilean novelist Carlos Labe talks reinventing the novel. So is all writing a self-investigation and a journey into the unknown. First up, it's Carlos Labe. Hello, my name is Carlos Labe. I'm a Chilean writer uh, based six years now in New York. I published seven novels now. Uh, two of them are in English now, uh, Navidad and Matanza and Locuela, both of them in open letter books. A publishing house based in Rochester, New York. Uh, the third one, Choreografías Pelli Spiritual, still under translation process. It's far coming next year. You know, I I've said in a couple of interviews that the writer should be a hacker of reality, um, meaning that the writer, uh, we have a, a perfect position, perfect place to read reality. Not everyone in, in, in these times, a lot of jobs, a lot of work, a lo lot of time. Our time is reading. Our, our work is reading. So as a reader, we should be able to read all the linguistic construction that serves as systems of, of living, narratives, you know? So nowadays we have a, a lot of narratives controlling our lives. So a writer should be the one who, in their novels, has to propose different kinds of living and using imagination to project better realities, better societies. But that puts a great demand on the reader because yeah. um, while there's lots of readers out there who love experimental yeah. narratives and plots that move around and, yeah. and maybe different types of voices and so on, it also is a quite a complex experience for a reader. It demands a lot of your intention. Mm -hmm. You sometimes have to reread certain parts of a, a novel or certain sections. Yeah. So it, you don't make it easy on the reader. Yeah, but yeah. should you as a writer, is that your job as a writer to make it easy? Yeah, yeah you have a point. I think with the years, I, I've learned that experimentalism uh, is not a value itself. 
You know, you, you have to know what you, you want to achieve with the experiment. Nowadays, I'm wondering about realism. You know, realism, I, I'm aware that the most beloved novels in our time are realistic. When you hear a, a, a novelist that is popular, it's because people in our system has to work a lot, nine to five, nine to, nine to six, and they are, by the end of the day, they are tired. The cognitive uh, capacities are not in the best shape in the evening when they, when, or in the, in the weekend when they are tired resting, when they approach to the book. So uh, I think every writer has a moment of experimentalism and then comes a moment of populism. When you, when you decide to be a cult figure or to uh, speak to a broader audience. And now my next books are going to be not realistic, but they are intended to be read by, by the, the everyday worker. So the structure of the new books in some way are subtly experimental inside the realistic uh, aesthetic. I suppose there's a commercial reality hitting you in the face as well, sure. that if you write some sublimely vibrant experimental novel, yeah. that you're limiting yourself in terms of maybe not the value in the book, yeah. but exactly. the value to the publisher in yeah. producing the book. Yeah. Well, to me, the reader is, is the most important thing. Mm. But at the same time, I'm always thinking that the reader is more, more intelligent than me, mm. even if, it's, if, if, if the reader is tired. But sometimes writers or editors, publishers, tend to think that, that uh, readership is stupid. But at the same time, you can see how, how people love all sorts of movies. And movies, you, you can see the most popular and most complex TV shows, American TV shows, are based on flashbacks and time uh, traveling and inside the story. So you, you get to the point that you have to differentiate among the way you present your narrative and how you construct the characters. Yeah. Well, let's look at your third book, Loquella. It's, um, I think it's been translated into English. Um, it's a very intriguing title. I think you got it from a French literary, uh, literary critic. And uh, Loquella means a lot of different things. It's got multiple meanings. So you're really putting it out to the reader, aren't you? Well, yeah, Loquella is a, is a very old word that exists in every language. In the Middle Ages, was very popular because in, in the Middle Ages, everyone was very religious. So, loquela in, in the Middle Age sense is when you are praying and you go into a very deep state like meditation or, or very deep praying state that you start uh, listening to voices that you can, you can legitimately think that th those voices are God or angels or saints. But then... Roland Barthes, the French philosopher of the 20th century, he took this, this concept and said, okay, we are not religious anymore in France, you know? <laughs> but this concept of complete, insightful, and when you start listening to, to something else, you can use it when you're in a sentimental uh, state of being, like when you are uh, in love and you are uh, being uh, wounded by a lover, so you start uh, obsessively thinking about what this lover did to you, even if you're not a lover still, someone you really like. So that person told you something, a phrase, a word that you don't even uh, understand, but it's, it keeps obsessing you and goes inside you in every moment of your day. So loquela is also 
a state of emotion when you are so obsessed with someone that you can't keep talking about that person. So what was the big question you were asking yourself when you were putting together this narrative? Because yeah. for some people could find it a little disjointed. Yeah. It's multiple narratives, multiple mm -hmm. voices. There's multiple truths yeah. and multiple realities. So it's hard to really know mm. who's reliable, who isn't. Well, it starts as a detective novel, mm. meta-narrative detective mm. novel. So all my books I want uh, want to be perceived in a, in a literal way, in a, in a very uh, normal way. But then I invite the reader to go deep, but in a literal, in a superficial way, it, it works as a, detect, a regular detective novel. So there's this corpse at the beginning and there's the, the, this detective that at the same time is writing a novel. But my main, my main purpose of that is opening reality okay. to all sorts of different linguistic realities. You know, nowadays it's so, so hard to find literature about the, a mystical state that is not related to a church, but still religious. I think a reality has a mystical uh, quality. You can always uh, talk with people that do believe in, in, in God or in any God, in any religion, but religious uh, discourse is so private now. Mm. It's even incorrect to talk about that to anyone who's not aware we, uh, of that. So in that moment, I was a student of literature. So every uh, student, is upset with their object. Mm -hmm. I was reading a lot. I was mm -hmm. like, literally like, like I was producing a lot of, of, of discourse mm -hmm. that I didn't know how to, what to do with that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was really obsessed with a person. So I had these three obsessions. I, I am a, a religious person. I was obsessed, obsessed with a lover and I was obsessed with, obsessed with literature. So as I say, I have these three problems. What should I do with that? Kill a person and build a mystery. In the novel, uh, a big issue is what's the difference between a secret and a mystery. The difference is that secret, a crime secret, is that by, uh, at the end of the book, you will know the secret. Mm -hmm. The secret will be revealed. But a mystery will always remain a mystery. But you're leaving it between the space between the writer and the reader. That's the, the mystery, really, isn't it? Because yeah. it's all down to interpretation. Yeah. I imagine some of your readers will absolutely love that and think it rocks. Mm -hmm. And others will just go, would this guy ever let off? <laughs> well, it's completely valid uh, to think that literature is entertainment. But even in, in the most silly entertainment, you always look for something and, and look for something that's, that goes beyond entertainment. Mm -hmm. And I'm aware of that feeling when you watch three hours of a, an absolute crappy movie that you you start watching it because you th you felt that some something could relate with you there and it's always that promise and they never fulfill the promise mm. and it's a void when you finish like a it's like a, eating a mcdonald's sandwich it looked yummy but now i i felt very bad so i believe that literature would never have had to be like that you have to Fulfill your promise, but not in a not in a story-driven way. Mm. So even if you fulfill a story, you can then have a, the void. So you have to promise a meaning because by the end we live in a world where there's a, a lot of battles between promises of meaning. You have yeah, you have a, a promise of meaning like sensual promise, and even depends on the, the day of the week. If, if Saturday night or Friday night is always a promise of going out in a bar and meeting someone, partying, and you, and you can fulfill your life with sensual, mm -hmm. sensual living. But 
Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, when everyone is a little bit down because the week is starting, you can you can be a little bit more be more mystical. It's oh, I, I'm all by myself. I, I have to grasp my deep beliefs. So by uh, Wednesday or Thursday, you say, okay, maybe the the meaning is in social life. Let's go uh, watch a, a drama piece. Let's let's go to the movies. Let's go to to a bar. And, and you, you meet with, with friends. Carlos, I have to ask you, you've been compared to one of the greats of Chilean literature, Roberto Balaño. What is that like? It must be a huge compliment, but then again, it must also be a lot of pressure because Balaño really um, put Chile and Chilean literature on the map, didn't he? Well, Bolaño is a very admired author in Latin America and, and Europe. And But an interesting thing about Bolaño is you know, Borges is a very important figure, but it's not popular at all. And th- at the same time, he was a, a great reader of, of Borges, and in some way he uses a lot of techniques mm. by Borges. But at the same time, he has like a vitality. He took from mostly the beatniks, mm. the big poets like Yeats or mm. Neruda or even, you know, French poets. Uh, so... In some way, Bolaño is, is the moment in, lit, in, in world literature when Borges and Kerouac or Ginsberg, more Ginsberg than Kerouac, they mingle in a new detective novel because Bolaño was always about detective novels. That was the new, the new, uh, the new aesthetic that Bolaño was, uh, so successfully yeah. imposed to the world. But at the same time, Bolaño came from a generation, political generation of the 60s, that in Latin America, in all the world, were so politically engaged. And in the 90s, they went to bankruptcy, ideologically bankruptcy. And so Bolaño is part of that. So in some way, you can see Bolaño as the the main writer that by the end of the uh, 20th century, beginning of 21st century, he constituted the looser rhetoric. Mm. So he was always saying, okay, we had it all. We were young. We were free. We were politically engaged. We we could have transformed our societies. In Chile, you know, we had uh, the Revolution of Allende, the first and only democratic communism model that was overthrown by Pinochet, and so is a trauma. And Bolaño was, in a small part, uh, participating in that. But the problem with Bolaño now is that now he's part of the old paradigm, and now, from 2011. It came a new paradigm. So everything repoliticized in the world. But he certainly and, and, and so effectively ripped up the rule books yeah. and challenged what um, crime fiction was yeah. and, and is yeah. and it did it in a very unique and savvy way. Can I ask you, and it's, it's a very troubling aspect of Chilean society, it's the treatment of indigenous in Chile. I was in Chile several years ago and um, it's... It's something that won't go away. And we see this in Canada. We see it in uh, in lots of different countries all over the world. Yeah. But it is a particular problem in South and Central America, how indigenous communities are treated and uh, terrible issues with land grabs uh, and human rights. That must be very difficult for educated Chileans to reconcile with. If you travel to Santiago and some of your other cities, it's very sophisticated, you've wonderful cultural spaces, yet there is the shadow of how the indigenous are treated and continually treated. Yeah, well, right now, to be fair, there's a war made by the Chilean state against the Mapuche indigenous in the south of Chile, 
police are killing Mapuches. Well, that has to be in record. You have to talk about that. But at the same time, it's not uh, prestigious uh, uh, talking about that. Bolaño, for instance, he never, he never even told the, the, the word indigenous, Mapuche, because he was a urban uh, writer. So that's why Bolaño is not uh, really a popular uh, author in, in Chile or even in Latin America. It's always a thing about elites. And even in, in the States or, uh, or in Europe, it's not really a popular. It's not Garcia Marquez. You know why? Or uh, Gabriela Mistral, you know? You know why? Because uh, he was always talking to the elite, uh, talking about the white colonized uh, elite. But Garcia Marquez, for instance, is a, is a mingle of indigenous tradition, European tradition, and all the mixture. So right now, the, 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 the writer, the, the fiction writer in Chile, he has to be responsible for the environment. Chile, all, all uh, Latin American countries, all, all the American countries, we have a big territory, beautiful places, uh, big spaces with, with a lot of resources, water, mines, and it has been treated in a very unfair way by the governments. And writers traditionally don't want to talk about that. I, I, I do talk about that. My, I have a, a, a novel, uh, Piezas Secretas Contra el Mundo. It's all about how can you do an ecologist novel without being politically correct. Yeah. And Barbara Kingsolver, uh, um, an American writer, yeah. has done that so, so cleverly. Yeah. I'm just wondering that all across uh, South and Central America, whether we look at Colombia, where we look at Paraguay, Chile, all these, these wonderful countries, El Salvador, Honduras, yeah. you have large indigenous populations, yeah. but we don't seem to read their stories. We read their stories no. in indigenous cultural spaces and museums, yeah. but it hasn't come through in the mainstream. What does that say about writers? Yeah, well, the first thing they say is that most people in Latin America, we are mixed. Mm. We're mestizos, we are mixed people, but all the, the surnames, are European. My, my own uh, surname is, is French, Labe is French, but I don't have any French background. Mm. And at the same time, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that I have a lot of indigenous uh, background that is not on paper. That's, that's the problem. There's a very good theory by an Uruguayan, uh, Angel Rama. The title of his book is The Lettered City. So his, his theory, and that's a perfect way to understand Latin America, is that when the Spaniard came and conquered and colonized and destroyed all the previous civilizations, they imposed the written culture. But you had to be a good uh, Spanish uh, writer. You had to know how to write. And all the, the indigenous uh, cultures, they don't have writings. It's, it's different than, by, than Chinese, uh, all European cultures, uh, even Indian you know, uh, all the indigenous, they didn't, they didn't need to, to write. That's a different question. Why they didn't need to write? So all these languages were like captured by the European uh, way of having everything in, in paper. So in order to have a prestige, in order to have power, you have to be a written person, a cultured person. But now there's a, the question of the cultural appropriation, you know. Being a person from Santiago de Chile, the, the metropolis, that is not the south or the north of Chile, where, where's the, the main indigenous population. And I don't have really, I'm not a part of, because you, the indigenous uh, people, they, they live in concrete communes. So they are communitarians. They, they depend on families and clans. But they didn't 
had the time to evolve in time like you guys in Irish, in Ireland, sorry. But if we look at yeah. um, Paraguay as an example, yeah. the Paraguayans seem to have done it a lo- so, yeah. so, 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 so much better because yeah. when you visit Paraguay and or you go Mexico. to Asuncion or, or Mexico, Mexico yeah. you get bilingual signs, you get, you know, you get indigenous uh, yeah. signs as well as the colonial language and there is a meeting. So it seems... But you know, yeah. in, in, in Chilean literature, there's something that... It, that's why we have some powerful poets. This, we have a big unconscious. Mm. This part of the, the the mind, according to Freud, no, we have a, a very charged unconscious, which uh, comes from the indigenous culture. Comes from the indigenous and comes from the centuries and, and millennials of in, injustice that we, the among quotes, white Latin Americans, we are always uh, doing to to the indigenous mm. uh, population and other mi- minoritized people, even women. You know. Uh, we are one of, of, of the, the countries where we don't have a legal abortion. We don't have, uh, divorce is very re- recent, like, like here maybe in, in, in Ireland. So this big unconscious is so charged that the, the best Chilean writers, they always had some difficulty in being story-driven, in being clear, in have a, a, a very light syntaxis. So José Donoso, Diamela El Tit, even some parts of Bolaño, they're so baroque. It's not guilt. It's, it's a way to contribute to, to bring the, the ghosts of the indigenous people that they are not allowed to talk. And you have to be very careful to not to use their, their stories, their folklore. In some way, you, you have to be careful not to talk instead of them or giving my voice to them, using my voice to, to them, you, they use my voice. Uh, that's cultural appropriation. So you have to be careful and in some way be very elusive, but open the page to this charge nation. Carlos, last question for you. A. Carlos has um, uh, made an appearance in a couple of your books. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, what are you doing there? And does that throw a lot of your readers off? Because presumably they're wondering, is this you infused within it? Yeah, so um, why do you do that? Well, I think it's, it's a good way to engage the reader, like, making a, a, a small like a strategy that you may think that this Carlos is me. And in some way it is me because it's a projection. I, I, I believe in the, in the power of imagination. I always believe that you can imagine different, different worlds, different societies, different, and even a different you, a di- different uh, persona of you. So um, Locuela, my, my second novel and, uh, in, in English, my third one in Spanish, I always say that I started this this book thinking something so simple. What what would happen if I, instead of going to to the bar and having a beer with a friend, I would remain in my in my home place uh, watching a movie? That alternative makes two Carlos, and the world is is full of of different uh, choices. You know? Every choice you do make you a different person.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're meeting at writers, novelists, and teachers who gave a range of stimulating and challenging workshops, readings, and talks at Isla the Irish-Spanish-Latin American Literary Festival at the Instituto Cervantes in Dublin in October. Next up, it's Mexican narrator, essayist and editor, Alvaro Uribe. Alvaro Uribe, I'm from Mexico, actually from Mexico City, and I've written, let's say, about 12 books, uh, a couple of them short stories, then six novels, and then a few books of personal essays. Unhappily, none of these books is, is translated into English. <laughs> Alvaro, I am... Um going to throw you a big wide open question to start off with and shall we see where we go with that. Do you think you can judge a nation by its fiction? Do you think that's a fair assessment to say? Yes, I would. If, if, if someone wants, would, would want to go to Mexico, for example, I, I would advise him or her to read Pedro Paramo. That's, that's a beautiful novel by Juan Rulfo, the name of the author. And I think one book or a few books, they capture the soul of, of a nation insofar as a nation has only one soul. Nations tend to be a little bit more complicated than oneness. Mm-hmm. Not many nations have many souls. I, Mexico doesn't have just one. But the main soul of the nation would be captured by this book, yes. Mexico is such an intriguing city to walk around and it has a very bad reputation for crime and violence. But the city itself is so charming. It's a very unexpected space, but it's beautiful to walk around, isn't it? Well, I was born there. I, I still live there, and I, I find it fascinating. Not always beautiful. There are zones in the city that are not actually very nice to look at. But but oh, there, there's always something interesting. The people in the city. It's a, it's a city that's so alive, and it has many. Well, of course, it, it can be violent, but I don't think it's the most violent city in the world, and it's certainly not the most violent city in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Mexico has lot worse cities so as a tourist I would feel more or less safe to, to walk there I, I'm actually a walker normally people in Mexico City tend to use cars that's the main drag about Mexico City the quantity of cars that that, that go through the city at every hour but but if you walk in the city it's it's really a, a beautiful place to be you studied philosophy in university and I know that um, your special interest was John Locke and he had a lot to say about the mind and the imagination and the spaces we go into I'm just wondering, how did his mindscape impact on how you look at the world and maybe how you your responsibility as a writer within it to share certain types of stories? Well, I, I studied philosophy. I knew I wanted to be a writer and a fiction writer, but I, I, I just didn't want to study that. I thought that if I studied very professionally in Spanish and Latin American literature, I would come to hate that kind of literature because of having to do it forcefully in the school. So I decided to to study something that would not make me anything. Professionally, a philosopher, what, what's that? It's really difficult to define a philosopher. I would define uh, him or her as a person who knows how to read very difficult texts mm-hmm. and, who, and who knows how to write clearly about these difficult texts. So actually, what philosophy taught me or teaches you or can teach you is to, to read and to write. It, it seems very elementary, but, but no, nobody knows how to read or write. And, and this very special way of reading intricate uh, mm-hmm. texts has allowed me to, to have a different yeah. view on, on, on literature. I kind of, I tend to understand a little bit more than my colleagues who didn't study philosophy. I tend not to be amazed or in awe uh, with difficult texts. I know that Locke thought that, or certainly put out, 
that it's how we think what makes what we read ours. He's got a point, hasn't he? Yes, of course. Sartre, also the, the, the French mm. philosopher, when he, he 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 went blind before before dying, and uh, when he went blind, he stopped writing, and he said, "Now I cannot think because for me." To think is to write. What I don't write, I'm not thinking, and, and, and I, I would agree with that. that, that uh, and that's also that's a very philosophical point of view. Whatever can be thought, it means it can be expressed. If you cannot express a thought, it's nonsense. Then you were not thinking. You, you were maybe feeling or dreaming or whatever. But if you think, necessarily, you, you have to be able to express it. It's consoling and directional at the same time, isn't it? Yeah. It's consoling and terrifying, no, of course. <laughs> yeah. Now, Alvaro, you have brought out a very unique collection of uh, writing from Mexico. You've got, um, I think, 16 writers born and bred in Mexico. They have all been born after 1945. Yes. It's a bilingual collection of stories from both rural and urban Mexico. You've got the very sublime stuff, the very thinking stuff, but you've also got some gritty, violent stuff and some kind of more political tones to it as well. Can you tell me about the collection? Yes, it was a project uh, very interesting because uh, we did it at the same. We did it for uh, for the United States. I work for the National University of Mexico. I'm an editor for the, for the National University, and the idea was that Mexico would do an anthology of modern, actual short story, and the, the United States would do the same thing to be published in the other country. Mm-hmm. And the very uh, special uh, thing about this project is that it's bilingual. Normally, only poetry is published bilingually because of the space you need to publish prose bilingually. And, and this one is bilingual, so it's good not only for people who actually haven't don't know how to read in Spanish, but but for people who don't don't know these stories also in English. So you can read even a professor, for example, yeah. could could use them. that's that yeah. that's the whole idea. And the way I chose the the writers, well, I I did not think, I do not think that I know all Mexican contemporary literature. It's absolutely impossible. There's so many so many good writers. So I tried to make lists of writers. And finally arrived to 16 that, uh, mm. for me, were not necessarily the best, but who had very special short stories. And I made them help me to the anthology. I told them to pick up two of their, their very best short stories, and I chose the one that would combine better with the others. So it, it's, it's actually, if you read this this, mm. uh, this book, you can have a, very, a fairly exact idea of what's happening in, in fiction writing in Mexico. But yeah, yeah, I was about to ask you that point, that in ways do you think that you can pick up a collection of short stories like what you've published and actually transport yourself mentally, socially, culturally, psychologically or whatever frame of reference you want to put on it into a country? Do you think it's possible to pick up a book 